This episode of the Athletic Business Podcast is brought to you by Synexis. Hello, and welcome to the Athletic Business Podcast. I'm Jason Scott. Joining us today on the show is Karen Weaver. Karen is a member of the graduate faculty in the higher education division at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a contributor to Forbes.com. She's got decades of experience exploring the intersection of college sports and higher education in terms of management, media, and policy. We'll be right back with Athletic Business Senior Editor Paul Steinbach's interview in just a second, but first, a quick break. Meet the Synexis Biodefense System, the sole developer of patented technology that transforms ambient oxygen and humidity into dry hydrogen peroxide, or DHP. Wherever air goes in your facility, so too will DHP to effectively and continuously reduce viruses, bacteria, mold, odors, and insects from the air and surfaces. Learn more at Synexis.com. That's S-Y-N-E-X-I-S.com. This is the Athletic Business Podcast. I'm Paul Steinbach. Joining us for this episode is Karen Weaver, a former college coach and administrator, a current member of the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education faculty, and a frequent contributor to Forbes on issues of collegiate athletics policy. We are speaking to Dr. Weaver days after Forbes published her article examining the budgetary turmoil at the University of Minnesota which announced September 10th that it was cutting men's indoor and outdoor track and field, men's tennis, and men's gymnastics. Dr. Weaver, welcome to the Athletic Business Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be with you. You served as an athletics administrator at Minnesota. How closely had you been paying attention to the economic challenge facing the U of M athletic department before you decided to write about it? Um, probably off and on. I still have a lot of friends who, while they're not working there, they, they care about it, they're passionate about it, so they would keep me informed. Uh, obviously, when the whole COVID-19 thing hit, I really thought that athletic departments were trouble, so I started tracking on a number of the Big Ten schools just to kind of see how they were managing, particularly with the Big Ten's initial decision not to play fall football. Uh, And then watching the the conference, you know, reverse itself because of better technology and testing. And and, and who knows, maybe it was peer pressure from the SEC. But just watching them come back to life, if you will, not knowing what those revenues look like. And as a sidebar, I wrote my, my dissertation on the launch of the Big Ten Network. So I understand how those revenues flow in, I understand where they go, I, and I, under, I understand how dependent um, uh, the Big Ten schools now are on that revenue stream from the Big Ten network. So trying to watch all of this evolve um, sort of prompted me to, to write about Minnesota. You mentioned roster management in your Forbes piece and how yeah. this case is an example of roster management in reverse. Can you yeah. explain what you mean by that? Well, the term came about when um, people were trying to balance out the football roster, which let's just use a round number of 125, that's the scholarship players and the walk-ons, and trying to find a a way to manage other sports, mostly men, to try to offset the number of women's sports that they had so that they didn't have to typically add more women's sports. That was just economically unfeasible. So 
in the past, you might look at uh, baseball and track and field and um, gymnastics and uh, some other roster things and say, instead of having 45 guys on the baseball team, you might have 35 guys. And those 10 slots could then be used to count on the women's side and get you closer. But a couple things have changed. One, the, the costs of sports have gone up, and I don't want to lose sight of that because I think exponentially even Olympic sports cost more these days. And secondly, because really on campus we have more female students than we've ever had before. I think I read Minnesota is almost at 54% female. And I, I, as much, little as 10 years ago, I think we were at 50-50. So that 4% change in the female undergraduate student population forces athletic departments, if they want to try to stay in compliance with Title IX, to look at, okay, well, we need to make sure we have 54% females on, on the w women's side as well, which means trying to grow your rosters, paying more attention to your roster sizes. Right. We found out that the through some pretty decent journalism on the part of the Minneapolis Star Tribune that that individual rosters for women at Minnesota were going to be trimmed. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the sports, the men's sports that are on the chopping block, but many women are affected too. Again, and that's where the reverse roster management comes in. So now they're looking at the women's teams and saying, you've got too many. Cut back. So that we can balance this out to the campus-wide population of 54% women and 46% men. And it's it's sort of ironic, and I think that's why I wanted to draw to the attention. And so we used to think of women as being the underrepresented gender, and because of the changing dynamics on campus in general, we don't can't always think of it that way. The Star Tribune's editorial board yesterday called for Minnesota regents to take a timeout. Yeah. on the proposal to eliminate sports, citing the damage it will cause to campus diversity. We're speaking on the eve of that decision by the U of M regents. Do you see any hope for a stay of elimination at this point? So, I, I, because of the dynamics of the finances, the way this has all come to a head, I'm not sure, as much as it pains me to say this, because I dearly love all sports programs, but because I was a former coach of an Olympic sport, I truly get the Olympic sport model. But but the university has no fallback position here unless they want to ask the athletic department to take out a massive loan of which there will be very few revenue sources to come back and pay off that annual debt payment. I, I don't know where they go. Knowing this about Minnesota, when and I was a CFO for a couple of years there, Eight eight million dollars annually comes from a university, so the, the the athletic budget was not self-sustaining by any means prior to all this. And even with the new influx of Big Ten money, they were still receiving eight million dollars a year from the university. Plus, and this I'm not sure if this is true, but when I was there, the legislature had given the university an additional seven point two million dollars to fund women's sports, to always make sure that the women had enough money to keep their program kind of going. That dated way back to the 1990s. So if you look at those two pieces, that's $15 million 
that already the athletic department was was beholden to. So the university looks at it and says, well, uh, 7.2 million, we've already accounted for that. How are you going to account for the rest of the of the debt in this situation? We, we can't be your backstop anymore. And that's traditionally what athletics departments across the country have done, is they've looked to a central campus and they've said, okay, um, help us out here. Can we uh, push a debt payment off to the following fiscal year? Can we spread payments out and have a kicker at the end. All of this came to a head when the media revenue streams dried up. And then when you can't have fans in the stands and have ticket revenue, it's a double whammy. It's truly a worst-case scenario. And um, the issue is, should we drop these sports right now? It's a quick fix. It's an easy solution. But it's not the right solution. The right solution is to fundamentally look at how we spend money in our revenue-producing sports and then look at the impact and philosophically what you want uh, for your athletics program as a whole, not just for the sports that produce revenue. Right. The, the, the Star Tribune reports today, October 8th, that program elimination clauses were added to the contracts of seven coaches beginning in 2019. Have you seen that report? I, ha I have begun to hear about that, uh, and I heard about it in the Pac-12, uh, that when coaches were being hired, uh, and it certainly wasn't the, the, the revenue sports, the way the sports we think it was the non-revenue sports. So yes, right. I, so somebody started that out on the West Coast, and I'm not surprised it's at Minnesota. Yeah, men's gymnastics and men's tennis, two of the sports that are up for elimination, their coaches are on that list of seven, and apparently uh, their employment will terminate automatically 120 days following the program's elimination with no buyout. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. No, I have a feeling that's going, that's going to be a fast-growing trend. And, and remember, part of this is because the, the, the athletic department felt so comfortable in the guaranteed revenue streams that were coming in from the Big Ten Network, from ABC and ESPN, that, and they looked at their, their Olympic sport coaches, and they said, well, we can't just have you on one-year renewable contracts. We have to put you on multiple-year contracts because that's one of the ways we'll remain um, attractive to potential coaches that we might hire. And now with the realing, realizing that is they have to, may have to unwind that quickly in a situation like this. Minnesota, of course, is not alone in paring down its program offerings. You just mentioned Pac-12. Uh, it's everywhere. We, we, you've written about what's happening at Iowa, uh, where four sports have been cut. William and Mary cut seven in September, and its AD resigned 33 days later. Yes. Stanford, long the gold standard of college athletics success and opportunity, cut 11 sports earlier this year. You coached Salisbury State to the Division Three Field Hockey National Championship in 1986. Yes. Yep. As someone who has experienced firsthand, as a player and coach, the height of joy made possible by college sports participation and competition, how does it affect you personally anytime you see and read about the elimination of opportunities for student-athletes? It's, it's like a, uh, a staggering um, knife to my heart it, because the opportunities are life-changing. I mean, here I am, what, what are we, uh, 35 years from that national championship. I still stay in touch with those players, and they still talk about that experience that we had together. 
And I still get comments from opposing coaches saying that was a really good team. I mean, we just have this connection with each other that is around that event. And you don't get to have that unless you've worked hard for something that, that, you know, takes a long period of time to achieve. Maybe some things go your way that wouldn't go your way other times. But there's something about that experience of pushing yourself further than you thought you could push yourself that is really hard to replicate anywhere else uh, on a college campus in a team environment. You could as a musician. You, you, maybe you could as a researcher. But sports has this way of, of pulling people the best out of people. And that's what's really hard to, to watch uh, being lost. What needs to happen to the economic model moving forward to prevent a situation in which one compromised football season, seven home football games for most schools, right. is seemingly all it takes to jeopardize the very existence of entire sports programs? Well, those who've been studying this for a long time, and there's sports economists, there's uh, you know former ADs, current ADs, uh, higher ed scholars have all looked at this and said, you know, hello, the Canary's been in the coal mine for a while here. There are uh, red flags all over this. Did any of us see a pandemic coming? Absolutely not. I mean, that's, that's certainly something that, that was unforeseen. But where, where some of the guardrails went off the system was not having a rainy day fund. For example, Ohio State had a $10 million rainy day fund. So if something goes really, really wrong, they had $10 million. They didn't have to turn to the university and say, please help us out. Um, I can count on one hand how many other universities in Division One that claim to have a rainy day fund. So when you're living that close to the edge year after year, and I think Minnesota, and certainly there are other schools in the Big Ten who are in similar situations, Something even half the size of a pandemic could have knocked this um, program off of its axis. But when, so when you when you're in a situation where you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and every year you count on those revenues coming in, and you're hoping that the revenue train will always continue, think about that in your own personal finances. I mean, if you're always you're never going to get laid off, there's never going to be a pandemic, and you're not going to have to have uh, you know, a salary coming in from one or two people in your household, and then all of a sudden it happens, most, most people would say to you, well, where's your rainy day fund? Where's your three months of savings? I mean, athletic departments operate the same way. And while university athletic departments, especially at schools like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, are like one or 2% of the total university budget, they play an outsized role in being self-reliant and when they're not self-reliant, it, it comes back to the university as the, as the protector. You just wrote uh, yesterday, I think it was, for Forbes, about an approach that the Knight Commission is kind of mulling over. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, so most people are familiar with March Madness revenue dollars. And, of course, you know, for so many schools that don't have football, that is their primary source of, of um, offsetting dollars. They don't have large football television contracts. So what you get in your March Madness dollars is really important. So the NCAA puts a formula together that, that carries a, a number of different factors. But the one I was talking about yesterday, which uh, to give credit to the Knight Commission, um, they really looked at closely, was the, the number of scholarships that a program offers 
the more you offer a hundred and fifty or more, it bumps up your amount of money that you receive as part of your annual March Madness payments. So schools like um, here in Philadelphia, we have St. Joseph's University, which has had really good basketball, even though they may advance all the way through the tournament, because they can't get to 150 full scholarships across their athletic program, they will receive less than a program who's got a football team, an FBS football team, because they start with 85 scholarships. So you take that as saying, okay, so the Division I FBS programs are already advantaged because they have uh, just more football scholarships. But then you've got a situation now that since 2014, the Power Five conferences created the college football playoff. And the college football player has generated about $475 million a year that's only shared within those Power Five conferences in Notre Dame. It doesn't run through the NCAA and back out again. It just goes back to those, you know, 70, 68, 70 schools, giving them a second advantage in the revenues. So the first one is they've got just simply more athletes on scholarships. And then secondly, they've got the revenues coming exclusively to them from the college football playoff. Yet the NCAA still takes care of all the mechanics of operating a um, equitable football program in terms of eligibility, in terms of recruiting mechanisms, in terms of lawsuits, and all those things. All those things are expenses against the NCAA's budget that football doesn't subsidize with the college football playoffs. So the Knight Commission did a lot of digging, and they found out that if we just change that criteria, another 61 to $65 million a year could come back to the schools that are less well-funded and maybe save one or two Olympic sports. And I think in this day and age, when we're all looking for good news somewhere, we ought to at least be looking at that. Your Big Ten conference roots run deep. Master's degree from Purdue, coached at Ohio State, helped guide the women's athletic department in Minneapolis. Given the extraordinary expenses related to playing football this season due to pandemic testing and travel protocols, stuff that the Minnesota Board of Regents outlined when they talked about the elimination of sports there, not to mention the health risk to student-athletes and staff, is it your opinion that the Big Ten, you mentioned this earlier, the first Power Five conference to say initially that it would not play this fall, should the Big Ten have held firm to that stance and delayed its football season? Well, I tell you, I can't imagine the pressure on the presidents to make that decision. And then you add our United States president jumping into the middle of this, and then it becomes a real political battle as well as just a, you know, a, a university or higher education battle. Uh, the pressure must have been humongous. And, and it's easy for fans, commentators, people looking from the outside to look at it and go, well, come on, you need to play football. You need the money. The fans want to play. We want to see it. Yet, But that has implications for everything else that you do in your program. Uh, for example, uh, and I tried to point this out in the article, uh, the cost for, and I think just today, Ohio State came out and said, it's costing them $3.5 million to do testing and tracing and sanitizing. And that's, that's an additional expense. That is an unplanned expense that only came about because of the protocols that the Big Ten schools agreed to 
to keep each other safe. So if uh, Indiana comes to Madison, what can Indiana expect in their locker room? How are they going to travel? They probably need to double the number of buses they got to use to travel from the airport. You know, what kind of sanitizing needs to be done on planes? All of those things are now um, new costs because you decided to play. And, and, and that's why I drew the, the connection to the cost for the, the Minnesota Olympic sports, the men's sports. Because, in effect, if you're saying it's costing you $2 million, that's about the cost of those sports. Sure. And, and those are the kinds of cho- uh, the choices now that we've been put into because we've decided to try to scrape by and get a nine-game season out of the Big Ten. So, if I'm hearing you right, the argument could be made that non-revenue student-athletes might have been more secure in a scenario where football just took a fall off. Am I hearing that right? Or or, de- or delayed it maybe to, maybe to the to the spring because mm-hmm. you're trying to get a hand you're trying to scramble and get a handle as to what your television partners are going to to play to be willing to give you the, the full value of the contract. Right. Um, it, it's a long shot. I, I I realize that, but that's how tight these margins are. Is that we knew back in June that we were going to have costs for 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 reinstating even practices. But I don't think until you really sit down and look at how effective are the tests, let's just take the basic testing that you do, and then how quickly those tests can be turned around, that people begin to understand, okay, we're not going to be able to pay necessarily for the $5 test every time. Occasionally, we're going to have to pay for the $50 test. Well, then the Big Ten, rightfully so, up, uploaded their their security and basically saying, okay, any athlete that does get sick, before they can come back, they're going to have to have a complete battery of cardiac tests. So, again, in all all this situation of health insurance, whether families have it, whether they don't have it, who pays for that? And so each one of those um, decisions elevated the costs incrementally that it's still unsure whether there's going to be a recoup in that investment because you don't have fans in the stands, your sponsors may be pulling back, et cetera, et cetera. Right. What does the future hold? Is the damage done, or do you think sports can be resurrected at Minnesota and elsewhere? Well, sports will be, will be here. I mean, that, that's, that's the good news. It's just what do we want them to look like? And uh, you know, we haven't even discussed the, the original elephant in the room, which was names, images, and likenesses back in January. If we'd had this conversation, everybody was all worried about that. That that seems like it's a back burner compared to some of this <laughs> stuff that's going on. But I, I really, and this is one of the things that I'm, I'm working on in my role at Penn, I really want colleges and universities to start thinking a little bit more broadly than the structures that we've created, and I'll use conferences, how we align ourselves in conferences as as maybe not working in today's marketplace. Uh, and one of the proposals that many people have made is perhaps we need different structures for each sport. Maybe you don't have everybody trying to, trying to compete in the Big Ten, for example, who's uh, every sport. Maybe the track and field group competes in one other conference, and they, they do their scheduling regionally versus nationally. Maybe the tennis team aligns in another way. You just have to look at this more holistically rather than the traditional model of conferences. And, Paul, to be honest with you, a school like William & Mary is a really good example of why 
um, the conference that they're in doesn't work for them. It doesn't mean the conference is a bad conference, and it just doesn't work for them. So what are their other options? They can't pick up and move. So where else do they find like-minded schools in all of their athletic programs that allows them to say, this is a good fit? It might have worked 15 years ago when the money wasn't as big, but now the reward goes to those people who throw the most money at a situation. And that's just unsustainable for 98% of the schools. I don't imagine we'll ever see realignment again, at least in the Power Five. I mean, we look at the Big Ten, 14 teams stretching from Mm -hmm. Lincoln, Nebraska to New Mm -hmm. Jersey. I mean, would the Big Ten ever contract to more of a regional conference just from a cost savings standpoint? Well, um, so this is one of the things I wrote about earlier this year. You know, 10, 12 years ago, when we were looking at conference realignment and, you know, Pac-12 was thinking about Texas and Oklahoma and Big Ten out in Nebraska and all those kinds of things. Airplane flights were pretty cheap. And also airplanes flew into multiple small small airports. It was easy to get planes. Charter planes were fairly easy to, to locate and, and to contract. And that economic model has started to shift, but it's also even um, worse because of the pandemic. I'll give you an example. So here in Pennsylvania, if you want to get to State College, uh, you got to either fly into State College on a really small plane or a charter, or you fly into Williamsport, which is 45 minutes away, or Harrisburg, which is two hours away. Well, and right now, American Airlines is not flying any planes into those sites. So if you want to get there, you'll be able to get there, but it just might take you two days instead of eight hours. And so the convenience of, of uh, multiple airports having multiple flights day in and day out, even for fans, is more challenging now. And, you know, a lot of people are really worried about where the airlines are going to go. We don't have any certainty. So we built these conferences based on television households and reaching cities and that type of thing. But now well, I think what we're realizing in our work-from-home world is that I don't know if I want to get on a plane anytime soon. I, I don't know when we're going to be at that point. So the economics of this could play out for multiple years, not just one. So perhaps we need to rethink conferences that are drivable versus flying. Right. Fascinating stuff to think about. <laughs> we'll continue to be reading <laughs> you in Forbes. And uh, Dr. Karen Weaver, I can't thank you enough for joining the Athletic Business Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Business Podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, Synexus. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to give it a rating or review and share it with a colleague. We'll be back next time um, with another episode of the show. But until then, take it easy.